siblings and coworkers, parents and supervisors. We all have people in our lives with whom it can be hard to get along, and even a good relationship has its rough spots. Join us as we take a kingdom approach to relationships, Heart Smart, a practical guide to relating like Jesus. Now, throughout the um, series, we have asked you guys to be sending in your questions about relationship issues or um, struggles that you all have been having. And we want to thank you for sending those in. We've been collecting your questions. Um, And so today we have the opportunity to answer your questions. So you guys have been sending in the questions and today we're going to provide hopefully some answers. We won't be able to get to all of them, but we'll get to a good chunk of them. Now, if you are thinking, ah, I have a question. I never got to send it in. That is a okay. You still have opportunity to do so. Um, You can use your mobile device um, or any kind of other electronic that has texting capability to text this number 651-321. 3030. You can text in your question and we will um, get it. So that's an option. For those of you who prefer to go uh, the tried and true way of paper and pen, that is A-OK as well. You can just write that down and then you need to deliver that to Miss Nicole. The lovely Nicole is sitting right back here. She's waving her arm. So you guys wave to Nicole so you can see where she is. She's lovely and friendly. She won't bite you. So you can just take your um, questions that you've written down to her and we will get to them up here. All right, so for today, to answer these questions that you guys have been sending in and will be sending in, we've got a couple of experts, and we've got Greg. So help me in welcoming, (laughs) who is the best expert of all, (laughs) help me (laughs) in welcoming Sue, Kevin, and Greg to the stage. Thank you for that lovely introduction, Shauna. Hey, uh, just FYI, it was Shauna's 40th birthday yesterday. Girl, you get, yeah, yeah, we're, we're roughly the same age, so that's kind of cool. So, <laughs> wasn't that funny? Wow. Ancient of days. All right. I, I, I love this Q&A stuff. This is, it, it's, it, it's really cool. I love, uh, it's just it's like playing chess, you know. It, uh, you have to respond in the moment and think. And it's really helpful to have two folks up here helping me do that. Uh, Sue Crow Kramer, I, I introduced her la- last week, but for those of you who weren't here, uh, she is uh, consulted to different companies, uh, flies around the world, very successful in this business of hers. Uh, all it's all about the brain, telling people kind of how to teaching teams how to communicate, how things people are wired, and things like that. So we are really, really blessed to have her as a part of this team. Yeah. You're awesome. You're awesome. You're awesome. <laughs> Uh, and, and she's volunteered your time up here and do, doing a lot of work on, in the background stuff, so really appreciate it. Kevin, we don't appreciate it all, but still he's here, so we'll say a word about him. Uh-huh. Well, he, he's our discipleship and community pastor. Uh, he has uh, he, he's been a therapist. He started up our care area. Uh, he's very knowledgeable in uh, relational, emotional intelligence, brain stuff, so we're really honored to have you here t- as well. And I know a little bit about the Bible, so we'll, we'll make this thing work. Um, I encourage you, like, if you ask questions here and they don't get addressed, it's probably because they were addressed in previous services and we're trying not to double up. Uh, and so it's not a first-come, first-served basis. If you ask a question even towards the end that no one's asked before, it has a good chance of getting on. So uh, on that note, I encourage folks to tomorrow or Tuesday or sometime this week, download the whole thing because every service deals with different questions. There's a little overlap here and there, but... Uh, I, I, if, if an issue that we address isn't your issue, we probably addressed it in one of the other services. All right, so check that out. Uh, we were asked one question uh, last night about a kingdom perspective on Ferguson. 
And I want to say a word about that. Uh, And that was too important to leave just sort of to chance and whether it got addressed. Um, Here's the thing. When events like Ferguson happen, and especially when a grand jury uh, hands on this uh, verdict that they came to, it inevitably polarizes the country along certain lines, racial lines for sure, political lines. And we live in an environment that is increasingly polarized to the point where uh, you know, people have focused on the individual and on this individual event, uh, and they, they can't even talk to each other. They only holler at each other. Uh, no one's really listening, trying to understand the other person's perspective. As kingdom people, here's the thing. I, we're, we're called to reverse Babel. We're called to tear down walls. We're called to manifest the one new humanity. This isn't a, an addendum thing. This is a central aspect of, of the atonement. So one of the reasons why Jesus died, Ephesians 2. Uh, and so so crucial we take a kingdom perspective on this and don't get sucked into the polarization of the world. Uh, instead of focusing on the individual thing, I, I, you know, I, I, I don't know what the grand jury knew. Um, you know and so I say I don't know that. Uh, but I need to zoom out and see a bigger picture. When you zoom out and see a bigger picture, you realize there's something broken here. It's not just about the one event. There's a pattern here that needs to be addressed. There's something seriously broken. Uh, far too many unarmed African-American males get shot. Uh, and that's not about the individual policemen or you know, their response. It, it's about a system here that needs to be addressed. The other important big picture thing a kingdom person has to ask, and I'm addressing here white folks like me, is to realize that the world you live in isn't the world that everybody else lives in. Or it's not necessarily the world that everybody else lives in. I came to the realization about 20 years ago uh, that I float in a stratosphere of privilege and that's been here from the founding of this country uh, that other folks don't float in and there are just beneath me on the social totem pole walls that other people bump into that I don't bump into. And I don't even know about them unless I am in relationship with somebody who does bump into those walls. Uh, and so what can happen is that when, the, when folks bump into walls and they go, ouch, if you're not aware of those walls, you're up here in the stratosphere, you can end up blaming them. Oh, you're just complaining. You're just playing the race card. You're this, this, or that, or other thing. You, you're, you're not, you have no right to get angry. But see, this is why it's so crucial that we cultivate relationships with people who don't look like us to learn about a slice of the world that we otherwise wouldn't know about. And that gives you the ability to empathize, to at least understand why... If I was a black person, I'd be, I'd, I'd be, I'd be angry. You know, I, my, my kid has a 27 times chance more, more likelihood to get shot uh, than if they were white. Uh, shot by police. So, so this is empathize. And um, uh, just know that th- th- your perspective is not necessarily the only perspective. And to learn, cultivate relationships uh, to gain a broader slice of reality. Amen? Amen? We're called to manifest that one new humanity. Okay, let's get to the other questions. Amen. Thank you. We are going to start with a doozy. Kidding. The idea of covenant relationship was mentioned several times in this Heart Smart series. What exactly do you mean by that? Covenant relationship. Sounds like oh. a theological question. That's kind of theological. <laughs> it's also very practical. Well, it, that is really, covenant is and it's not a word we use much anymore, but it's, uh, it, it's really just a relationship with understanding. It's, it's uh, where you, there's a pledge involved. You promise to be a certain kind of person in this relationship. You define the relationship. And so you just make it explicit. Um, we all have covenants, though aside from marriage, we don't usually speak them. But there's relationships we have where the, the person just has expectations of us. Uh, us, we have expectations of them. Uh, there's boundaries set up. 
But because we don't say them, it often takes someone violating the terms of the covenant before you notice it. Like it just feels weird here, or it's just getting awkward. Um, that's why I encourage people, if you have ambiguity in some relationships, uh, to just make it uh, explicit. And it's, it's kind of weird, because in our culture we don't do that, but it's a whole lot uh, better to have an awkward moment where you specify what the relationship is and what it's not, than to have a relationship that's either you're always disappointed, or they're always disappointed, or people are frustrated, people get hurt, and all that kind of stuff. So it's just making an, a, a, a relationship explicit, uh, when the relationship involves promises and pledge and expectations and boundaries. That's a covenant. I feel a stirring coming on to channel Paul Eddy, who's normally part of the Q&A. Uh, we're not New Age, so, Kevin. We don't yeah, do channeling. We talk about this. But if any of you know Paul Eddy, covenant is his sweet spot. That's yeah. his life's work in terms of study and research. And he has a two-word definition to sum up what Greg just said. Covenant is love formalized. Mm-hmm. Formalizing love. So making it explicit, just as Greg said. Putting it out there in clear terms for each Good. other. Thank you. I like the um, abbreviated version, and I like the more explained version. <laughs> Just good. know that love doesn't mean romantic. Okay, that's the, it, a lot of times people today think uh, love formalized. Well, I'm not in love with this person, so I don't need to formalize it. Well, all of our relationships are supposed to be loving. Yeah, amen. It's just that there's different kinds of love. And so this makes explicit the kind of love uh, that uh, pertains to the relationship. So a good follow-up question to that, since we were just talking about covenant relationships, is um, can you have too many friends? If we are loving in a sacrificial way, it probably takes time. Is there a point where you need boundaries on how many people you can love well at one time? Great question. Yeah, the question of boundaries has come up a lot in the series and in last week's Dear Abby letters as well. I would just say that, as Greg just mentioned, you know, we're, we're called to love everybody everywhere all the time. And so the love itself is something that we can do um, to anybody that comes across our path, no matter how many people are coming across our path. It's ascribing infinite worth. It's treating people with honor and dignity. But in terms of really going deep in relationship and having the time to have relational depth, we can't do more than a small number of relationships very deeply. The kind of relationships that really help us grow and nurture Jesus-like love in us um, if we're trying to do too many of those, we're going to burn out. And, and if we're trying to meet the expectations of way too many people, we're going to start to get frustrated with people and then not love them well. So I think in terms of deep relationships, we need to, to keep those to a smaller number and really invest well in those. But anybody that comes across our path, we're called to love. So I don't know if you guys have anything to add And to I that, just but. remember a fantastic message that uh, Scott Boren gave uh, uh-huh. a couple of years ago about your friends like starting out on the sidewalk coming onto your porch you can have so many porch people living room people all the way into your kitchen and the people who can get in your refrigerator which I thought was a great analogy of how many people people fit (laughs) (laughs) exactly I just thought I had it all good? yep okay so my husband this is from um this is a relationship one. My husband is a great guy, but he talks incessantly. <laughs> What's wrong with that? Okay, sorry. There's some um, uh, did my wife subtle amens. <laughs> and this is said in love, I'm sure. Being an introvert, this is driving me crazy. I ask him for times of silence, and he mopes around. Before long, he's back to talking again. It's like he can't help it. I can't imagine living the rest of my life with a boring talking machine. Ouch. Ouch. Please please give me some wisdom or tell me this is justifiable grounds for divorce. Wow. 
Ouch. Oh. Uh, Stop being funny. <laughs> She's serious. Uh, well, I've got a couple of thoughts, especially towards the end when we were talking about the boring talking machine. Was yeah. It? Okay, yeah. Um, that would be bordering on contempt in, in, for, to put language to it. Uh, and there's a whole idea of, John Gottman does a ton of research, so this is kind of a brain answer, but around the difference between a complaint, um, criticism, and contempt. And it's important to discern sort of where we're at in that process. So a complaint is, generally speaking, this isn't working. So we've got a whole situation going on. It's not kind of coming together. The criticism is, you're doing something that's making me a little bit crazy. But it's still more behavior-based at that point. Contempt is when we start turning it into a personalization. So you are a slob, or you are a a boring talking machine. Statistically, when people get to contempt, there's a significant problem in the relationship, and it needs critical care at this point in time. When you get to contempt and you are making comments that are demoralizing to the other person, this is the point at which you really do need to get some critical care, or you're going to be in serious trouble. Yeah, it sounds like if this is really not just a joking comment, but this is how she's feeling, I would Mm -hmm. recommend that they have a serious conversation about that. Um, and that she would be able to make an observation without evaluation. She could say to her husband, well, you know, I, I love you and you, you have a lot of interesting things to say, but it's just kind of a lot for me. And so could we talk about how to regulate the flow without putting the word boring on it? Um, and it might be for, from the other side of the equation, they might need to have a conversation where they can help him find other people who like that kind of conversation. Maybe the topics he really loves to expound on. Uh, I'm thinking maybe my wife sent this one in because anybody who knows me knows I like to talk to. But uh, he should learn how to notice when her eyes might be glazing over and he needs to learn how to regulate, well, I'm, be- I'm coming on too much, too many words. And then he should also be able to find other people that he can just have long, wordy conversations with. And so I'd encourage him to go that route as well. It's amazing how different people can be on that spectrum. Uh, where I mean, Shelly and I had to work through this because uh, she couldn't, in her world, anyone would act like I act on my really good days would be angry at her, at her. Uh, because I could, she could never understand how a person could spend 12, 14 hours alone in a, a room reading or typing or whatever and like it. Uh, she would only do that, go into a room like that if she was you know, mad at somebody or something. So initially she thought I was always angry with her or because I didn't want to engage in conversation all the time or sometimes I said, would say, um, can we take a break from the conversation? Because it, it, it starts to rally if you're high on that introvert scale. But for a person like Shelly, it's just socializing, you know, and, and whatever's on her mind, she wants to, you know, say. In her case, it's always interesting, but still. Uh, so it's really important to get explicit about that and just acknowledge that we're different here, because it sounds like the husband's kind of, she said he mopes around. So he's probably feeling really hurt and unloved because she doesn't want to listen to him. And she probably at least didn't mean that initially. She just needed her space, uh, you know, to, to, she was draining, and you got to recharge the battery. Um, and so you have to get clear on, on the, what the expectations are, how you're wired, all that emotional intelligence stuff. Yeah. Cool. It's, it's sad. Something like that is so easily solvable, and yet it can, it can destroy marriages. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so a good follow-up question along those lines um, has to do with the he said, she heard sermon. Um, so this person is saying that that sermon really hit home. But after five years of marriage, my husband and I are still no better at communicating than we were five years ago, and we're terrible, despite having gone to three counselors. This has totally eroded our marriage. I think we're close to hating each other. 
I don't believe in divorce, but this doesn't seem like a real marriage. Do you have any recommendations? This one sounds a little bit like the previous one where I would be worried about contempt, as Sue talked about. We're close Mm -hmm. to hating each other, where a behavior or a behavioral problem like communicating starts to, uh, instead of the problem being the problem, the other person becomes the problem. So I'd really encourage them. They might need to see another counselor, not about communicating, but about the, the development of that contemptfulness. But my question would be, I wonder if in their previous three, I think, counselors that they saw, if they were actually learning communication skills. They might have been just trying to hash through problems and not actually learning the skills of communication, which are two different kinds of things. And you can have... Um, lots of problems you're trying to work through, and a therapist even helping you work through the problems, but not helping you develop communication skills, the ability to actually speak um, from your heart, speak vulnerably instead of judgmentally or blamingly, the ability to actively listen and ask probing questions and then empathize with the other. So if they haven't been to a therapist that was teaching them specific communication skills, I'd encourage them to start there. The opposite might also be true, though. They might have been to therapists that taught them the nuts and bolts of communicating, um, but never how to actually get down to the deep heart level of what the problems are. And so that's a whole different kind of counseling as well, where you, you might have, I've talked to lots of folks who can communicate articulately, but they just don't know how to get underneath the actual problems to the deeper heart issues and the values and the wounds and the concerns. So I guess I'd encourage them to not give up yet and maybe try a different counselor who will either help with them with the communication skills or help them get down to the deeper underlying heart issues. I don't know if you guys have anything else to add. Well, the only thing I would say is, are they truly both invested in moving towards each other? Mm-hmm. Or are they now just at that point of nitpicking the differences? Because underneath everything, if you aren't 100% committed to move towards Great each point. other, you're probably not going to resolve it. Great point. So they, I think one of the most important things in, in a relationship is that whole map territory distinction that we made. Your map is not the territory. And just realize that your perspective is not equivalent to reality. And people vary in, in their ability to do that. And some people are always aware of that. Uh, but other people, if they've never been pressed and never had to you know, uh, interact with people who are very different from them, they have no idea about how different their map is from you know, other people's maps. And all communication presupposes, it's all an attempt to try to get on the, the other person's perspective uh, of, of uh, the issue or whatever the thing is that's going on. And so uh, to have a, a counselor uh, who can really help you wake up to that. It's, it's a matter of remaining kind of aware um, and, uh, and to be able to suspend that map to, in order to, to uh, empathize, get on in, in the inside of someone else. That's a key, key skill to all relationships. Thank you, guys. I just want to take a moment to remind you all of the phone number so you can continually, throughout the service, be texting in your questions. It's 651-321-3030. And this is all relationship issues. I know we've dealt with a few of marital relationships, but these are all relationship issues. So if you have questions, please feel free to text them in or write it down and send it over to Nicole. All right, so um, behavior. Why is it so hard to change my behavior? I hear all of these great messages and am completely on board with making changes that align with God's will. I repent and turn to walk the other way, but it always seems that within days I lapse back to my old behavior. The old New Year's resolution problem. Uh, I could I could give you a brain She's answer. A brain. Want a brain answer? Okay. Um, You're the brain girl. <laughs> I saw Sister brain, picture. that's I what I call her. picture over my head. <laughs> Well, part of what's interesting to me about how God wired and designed our brains is our brains are like big rechargeable batteries. 
And every day the battery runs pretty much out. Some of us notice it runs out much earlier than the day than we really would like for it to be running out. And there's a reason for that. And it's just such an amazing design. This part right behind our brain, our forehead, our prefrontal cortex lobe is where we do all of our uh, executive functions. So high-end problem solving, prioritization, all those kinds of things, analyzing the problem. Sudoku. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And this takes a ton of battery power. So how the battery is working is this part takes a ton of energy to run. And this is where change needs to take place. It's got to take place in this high-functioning, discerning part of our brain. But how God designed our brain is to make sure we could maximize how much we can do in life. Once we've had a few repetitions of something, it moves out of this high-functioning part of our brain into another part of our brain that just does patterns. And it runs very efficiently with very little energy. So, for instance, I can pick up this bottle and take the cap off and take a drink without thinking because it's in a pattern part of my brain. I know how to do it. We're impressed. Yeah, we should be. Yeah, the problem is, after I've had enough repetitions with a particular person... um, A difficult That also moves out of this part of my brain into the pattern part of my brain, and now I just behave that way every time I see you. Uh, Now, if I want to change that or change the relationship or change what I'm doing, the reason, one of the reasons it's hard to change is I have to keep pulling this out of the pattern, the low-energy part of my brain, put it back into this thinking, discerning part of my brain, that takes a ton of energy. And that's what is required to create change. So after I do enough repetitions of this, it will actually go back into the high pattern part of my brain as my new normal. But what happens is when we get tired, it's the end of the day, we're hungry, whatever the case is, this part of our brain doesn't have a lot of energy left. Has anybody ever noticed when you've got a real commitment to lose weight, you start out great early in the day, and as the day goes on, you have less and less? Well, that's because this part of your brain is tired, and it's like, ugh, do what's easy. That's part of what's going on. Yeah, I don't want to piggyback on that. Sue made reference to repetition, and I, when I heard the question being asked, you know, we're all familiar with that, where we want something different, and we just try harder to have that difference in our lives. And one of the things that we teach folks a lot around here in counseling as well as in classes is uh, there's a difference between trying harder to do something and training to be able to do something differently. And trying hard in the moment is not going to change those patterns that are settled. Uh, training over time will do that. And so Sue talked about repetition. When I came in here earlier this evening, I got here uh, when the band was practicing. They were rehearsing their worship set on stage. And why were they doing that? They rehearsed the songs so that when uh, the, the service started, it would be fresher in their minds and in their fingertips and in their voices, and they could perform better. And so rehearsing is actually the way to do that, to, take, to, to work with your prefrontal cortex and work on a behavior, something that you'd like to be able to do, rehearse it in your head. That might seem strange, but we, in counseling we talk to folks about behavioral rehearsal. What is the thing you want to do differently with your friend, your spouse, your coworker? Well, don't just show up and try to do it differently. The way to bring change is to, be, before you get to be around them, picture in your mind, what is it that I want to do differently? How would Jesus want me to love them? What would I imagine saying to them? What posture would I have? What facial expression? What are the actions that I would really like to be able to do? Then you imagine those in your mind. You're rehearsing them in your mind. And a lot of the brain research shows that when you're actually imagining a a set of behaviors in your mind, it's activating the same neural neural set and circuits in your brain that you would actually need to do those behaviors. So you're rehearsing the behavior. And when you rehearse outside of the interaction, 
you're more likely to do those uh, behaviors in the relationship live. So that's a way to make what Sue said just kind of become real, rehearsing what you want to be like, what you want to say, what you want to do. It's so weird that people, we always, we assume that with, with athletes, you know, musicians, and anything else that requires skill. But when it comes to uh, being a disciple of Jesus, which is the most challenging thing imaginable, uh, we think it's going to come automatically. You know, why doesn't God change me? Why doesn't God do this? And, and it, it requires the same kind of intensity as you'd have in a, in a sporting event, which is all about focus and, and use prayer as a rehearsal for life. Practice it in your, brain, in your mind before uh, uh, the, the situation's upon you. One, one thing I'll just say is this, that um, the, you know, when, you, when you bring something from like the warehouse where it has, it's on autopilot and requires very little energy, and you put it up in the front storefront, uh, which is your thinking part, and it takes a lot of energy... Uh, it's like those things got to have elastic on them, and because they keep on wanting to be pulled back into the warehouse, yeah. you know, and and so th- that will happen automatically because we tend to do most of life on on autopilot, and that's where it's really helpful to have reminders. Uh, if you're going to change something, uh, have reminders about it all over the place. It's good to have uh, friends who are, will help you do this, and so they can kind of on occasion text you or or call you or something to to remind you about you know this change that you're doing because. Um, uh, for sure, you'll forget, and you fall back into the pattern. Good question. Nice. Awesome. Okay, so this person says, I like to stick to God's word when I think about how I'm supposed to think and act. What scriptures should I look to when thinking about relationship issues? Are there controversial passages that can be taken more than one way? Yeah. 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 Well, you know... <laughs> I'll first say this, that um, Jesus and Paul and James all say that the rule of love, the royal law, as James calls it, um, covers everything. And the whole law is covered by the law of love. Love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. And that's a relationship, that's a relationship thing. And so um, yeah, that, that, that teaching uh, applies to everything. Now, it, this person may be, they, they say, I, I want to stick to the Bible as closely as possible. Are there you know, verses I can go to? Um, that will help this, and are some controversial can be taken different ways. Uh, the answer is yes, there's a ton of verses that can be taken a lot of different ways. Uh, and that's why I'd be careful about going to the Bible to find a rule about this relationship and another rule about this relationship, treating the Bible sort of as the how-to rule book. It's got principles that can guide us, but we have to take into consideration that it's written in a very different culture than our own, a different time than our own, with different assumptions. And so you have to be careful about just sort of extrapolating something and applying it to uh, your, your own present uh, uh, situation. A classic example of that is the whole thing on, on uh, husband and wives, uh, their, their relationship throughout the Bible. Um, in the old and the new, especially in the old, but also in the new, uh, women are, the assumption is that women are owned by men, that they're property. That's just, that was the culture. Um, and all of, the, all of the teaching on it presupposes that. Now, it Christianizes that, it, it, it improves it, but you still have that assumption at work. And so, for example, in 1 Peter 3, it says, right after it says, slaves, submit to your masters, even if they're not treating you right, it, right? it says, and, and wives, in the same way, submit to your husbands. Uh, like Sarah did, and she called, but she called Abraham Lord. I so said, if you wanted to rule, take that out, and now make your wife uh, call you Lord. Good luck with that. Um, it's, in this, that's not loving in this culture. And there's principles that are taught in Scripture that actually transcend that. Uh, where, you know, you see that in the body of Christ, the ideal is to have an egalitarian relationship, an equal, mutually beneficial relationship, not just with your spouse, but with everybody. 
There's no lording over in, in the kingdom. So uh, I, I would say, I'd say follow the rule of love, the royal law, and ask what does love look like in this situation? Because see, rules, Bonhoeffer's book on ethics is really good on this. Rules can never get to the concrete relationship. Every relationship is kind of different. Every situation is kind of different. And a rule can't, can't get on the inside of that to know what love would do. Only love can do that. Only love's incarnational. Only a commitment to love can, can get you in the particulars of this relationship to give you the wisdom to know how to respond in this relationship. So read the Bible for principles, but not for rules and technicalities that you can apply uh, to each particular relationship. I can think of another couple passages that I think are applied maybe in unhelpful ways at times. So, for example, Jesus says in Matthew 18, uh, forgive 70 times seven times. And so I can say that that, I think that just means we're supposed to be very willing to forgive and let go of things. And 70 times seven, the number seven is the number of completeness. So Jesus is just talking about lots and lots of forgiveness. But I uh, have experienced some folks that take that passage and say, well, that means I should never um, be mad about something or upset about something. I should never, you know, I'm not never supposed to address issues with another person because the Bible says I'm supposed to forgive endlessly. So I think that's a misapplication of that because the Bible also says speak the truth in love. Mm-hmm. And if, you're, if your brother has a, a fault or is straying in some way, we're to go to that person in love and gently um, bring correction and, and redirection and feedback. And so those are two passages that seem to contradict each other, but um, they both have an application. So the fact that we're supposed to forgive endlessly and forgive generously, um, that's a true thing. We're supposed to tolerate a lot. First Corinthians 13 says, bear all things, endure all things. On the other hand, the scripture tells us that sometimes the loving thing to do is go to the person, speak the truth in love, help them see their fault, help them disentangle from their sin or their unloving pattern. So those are passages, I think, that seem like they contradict each other and we might tilt towards one or the other, but we have to hold those in a loving balance with each other. Good. It's, it's, uh, there's a really good book to get if, you're, if, you're, if you come upon a passage that just doesn't make sense or it seems like if you applied it in your context, it would, it would seem unloving or, or something like that. Uh, often, it, it, you can understand it once you put it in its historical context. And the book I'm thinking of is uh, it's the uh, IVP, Biblical Background Commentary. And they have one volume for the Old Testament and one volume for the New Testament. And they go through there and they take every passage that a contemporary person might misunderstand and they provide the historical context that sheds light on it. It's really enlightening. And so that's a good thing to check out. Although it's pretty expensive and fairly academic and it's very thick, but it's still worth it. Oh, we can just call you and now. ask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's what you'll end up doing. Here's Greg's number. Look it up for yourself. <laughs> Do not trust the internet on these kind of questions, though. Please. Do not Google it. All right. So, back to some questions. Um, we've had a few come in about forgiveness and reconciliation. So, um, and I'm going to kind of combine two of them. So, Kevin and Sue, and also Brianna, talked about um, forgiveness and reconciliation. Um, members of my small group heard different things, so this person would like clarification. And on the same note, um, uh, with forgiveness, a person says that they just cannot forgive their ex-spouse. Um, is that really a sin? This person was really awful to them. Let's see. I can jump in with forgiveness and reconciliation. Um, generally, f- forgiveness is something we do. So it is something we take upon ourselves. We pray, we connect with God, and it's us forgiving. It, but it's more for us in terms of keeping ourselves whole, keeping ourselves connected to what's important, truthful in life. 
Reconciliation requires two players. And I, I find often in relationships people want reconciliation, but if the other person isn't game, isn't participating, mm-hmm. reconciliation may not be an option that's available to you. But that doesn't change the fact that you can still get into a forgiving state. Mm-hmm. I think Brianna brought up the idea that unforgiveness is when you keep drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. Well, clearly yeah. that's not going to help. So you might as well stop drinking the poison and get yourself whole. But you want to jump in? Yeah, the... I would just agree. It, for, for, uh, forgiveness is a one-way thing. We're extending, we're releasing a debt and letting go of the other person's debt. We can do that with or without their participation or their apology. And reconciliation takes two. So it's, it's the rebuilding and healing of the relationship. And it's sitting down. It will involve mutual forgiveness um, at the least to, as the starting point, And then mutual change. We're changing behaviors that were causing us a problem so that we can continue to have a relationship. But the tail end of that question was a little bit more challenging. Greg's going to probably have to chime in on this one about if I'm not either willing or able to forgive my husband, is that a sin? I would just say off the top of my head, um, forgiveness is commanded in the Bible in a number of places. And so to not forgive, I think, then would seem to be a sin. But I think there's a difference um, in whether you're truly trying to forgive and you just don't seem to be able to. You seem stuck in it. Um, I don't know if the God would look at that and say that that's a sin as long as you've you actually been trying. You can't figure it out. You can't seem to work your way towards it. You're stuck. Well, I don't think that's a sin. But if there's a stubborn refusal to say, I'm, I'm never going to be willing to let this go, I think that probably crosses the line into a sin because our whole faith is based on God forgiving us and then calling us to offer forgiveness to each other. But forgiveness is a process. It doesn't happen just because you are told to do it. It, it. it sometimes takes a lot of time and a lot of work, sometimes with a therapist, sometimes with a lot of prayer, and, so it, it's, and sometimes you can get stuck. I don't know what you'd say on that one, Greg. Yeah, it's, I, I suspect, I don't know for sure, but I suspect that the person is uh, feeling continually angry because they're running videos and tapes and soundtracks in their head about all the wrongs that were done to them. So she's re, or he is re-experiencing this over and over and over again, which is going to create a feeling of anger. And so, you know, you can formally say, I release you, I forgive you. But if, if you don't change the way you're thinking, um, you're just going to keep on, you know, uh, making yourself angry. I would encourage them to consider the fact that while, I mean, we, there's a part of the healthy self that, that, hang, that, that is angry because it's saying, I am worth more than the way I was treated. And, and that's a healthy kind of thing. But... The person, if we hang on to that, it starts to harm us. Um, and, and so realize that this is the, you're, you're the one drinking the poison, not the other person. And in fact, we, you're giving the other person power, even though they don't know it, you're giving them power to define you. To the extent that you're angry when you otherwise wouldn't be, you're, you're saying, you have the right to be lord of my life in this area. And do you really want to make them lord of your life? <laughs> you don't. So it, it, it's really to your benefit to let it go. To let it go, to release it, and that means release it from your brain, and ask God to give you different ways of thinking and, and to bring every thought captive. The only other thing I say about that is this: the reason we hang on is because we think we need to hang on. Mm-hmm. I'm worth more. I'm worth more. I'm worth more. And here you need to realize that you don't need to hang on. But you will hang on as long as you think you need it. But here's where you have to go back to your source uh, and get all your life and worth and significance and security and core sense of. Uh, need to be loved from what God thinks about you on the cross. So I encourage this person. I, I suspect when God looks at you, he doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't file this under the category of sin. He files this under the category, category of wounded child. And he wants to heal you. 
and you're wounded because you're empty, and that's why you're hanging on, and that's why you're drinking poison. And so I, I encourage you to spend some, a lot of time uh, putting, getting alone with Jesus, darken the room, put on some nice lyricless music in the background, and envision Jesus, and hear him say to you all the things he's already said to you, in script, uh, said about you in Scripture, with your name on it, see it in his eyes, and just experience that really deeply, because that's what your soul is craving. And once you get full of that... Now you realize my worth is settled and nothing anyone would do to me is going to detract from that. And so you can just let it go. You no longer need to hang on to it. So do you guys think that forgiving means continuing in relationship with the person that you've forgiven? Nope. Yeah, I think we just talked about that with the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness is a one-way thing and reconciliation is two ways. And so sometimes... We're not the, if the person is not changing, they're abusive, they're very destructive, or being together is destructive, then it wouldn't be the right thing to be back together in that relationship. But you can still forgive them. You can forgive somebody who's died. Uh, you can forgive somebody who's not repented at all. Jesus hangs from the cross and says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And the ones he's forgiving are in actively killing him and torturing him on the cross. So uh, forgiveness and reconciliation, two different things, but definitely it's not always the case that you need to be back in a relationship just because you've forgiven. That's yeah, a great point. You're releasing a debt because unforgiveness is about you owe me, you owe me. You, know, you detracted, so you owe me. And so this is about releasing the debt because you don't need it any longer. But that does, it's entirely different than whether this person is trustworthy or not. I mean, the fact that you release the debt doesn't mean that you're eager to get back into debt, you know? Uh, and it, yep. some people aren't, aren't trustworthy or whatever, and, and so you have to uh, separate those two things completely. Uh, they may say that you haven't forgiven me because you don't want to hang out with them, but yep. the truth is you have forgiven them, but you just don't trust them because they abused your child or something. So. Thanks for clarifying that, you guys. That was really, really good. Um, so we have a question about friendships. And this person is wanting to know, should we have a mix of Christ followers as well as non-Christians that we allow into our kitchen or into those deeper relationships? Or should those closest friends only be Christ followers? Hmm. I want to just jump right in and say, (laughs) yes, both. I mean, how will the world out there know the Jesus that we love if we don't allow ourselves to have real friendships, not just sort of their targets of evangelism? actual authentic friendships and people in our kitchens and our living rooms how will folks come to know the jesus looking god if we don't open up our lives to them and share our spaces with them i say a hearty yes to that Uh, we may only be able to go so deep with some of those friendships because we won't overlap in our spiritual value system our spiritual life at least for a while and the hope is that they would come to know jesus and then we would have a, a whole new depth to our relationship but we're here on earth for a mission we're here on earth to be the image of jesus and to shine the light of jesus not just to enjoy Jesus for ourselves. And so having Christian friendships that we enjoy that are deep is awesome, but our mission here on earth is to, uh, to, to bring that awesome thing to others and to let them see it in our lives. And that means in our kitchens, I think, our living rooms. Well, and Jesus did. Yes. I mean, first and foremost, like, <laughs> was out there with the prostitutes and the tax collectors and everybody else. So there was not a qualification process going on. And there's just the reality that we get sharpened a, a bit by being confronted. Like, I know Greg often says you like to talk to people who have a different opinion about uh, Christianity or whatever because yeah. it causes you to have to really confront things as opposed to getting super comfortable mm. and just believing you have all the answers all sure. the time. Now, Christians tend to get isolated, and so they only hang around with people that are like themselves. What happens is that 
you know, it gets to the point where if, if you're not out and interacting with people that are significantly different than you and learning their talk and their categories and all that stuff, well, you get increasingly unable to even communicate effectively to the folks around you. And so you have the Christians who will go out, you know, and, and use... Well, I used to do it when I was first a Christian. We'd go to people and say, are you rapture ready? Well, they have no idea what the rapture is. But see, we're so ingrown that we, you know, are you rapture ready? That's how we would witness. Awesome. I was feeling rapture the other night, I guess so. It is, yeah, so it, it's very important to, to uh, be related to people outside of your little Christian circle. And to make space for that. I think if we don't have spaces for that, you know, we're, we're falling beneath what you know, our, our mission here is, to be able to be available to others. I think that's just so key. If we can simplify our lives to have deeper, richer Christian friendships and still have spaces for others and, you know, missionally to reach out to them. I think that would be a wonderful priority. The, the other thing I'll add is that I, I love what you said about not a, a, a relationship is different than a, a targeted, you know, uh, whatever you said, a targeted evangelism thing. Because yeah. people can smell that a mile away. Absolutely. If you're just hanging out because, you know, you just look for the opportunity to say, do you know Jesus? Right. Uh, it's like, it's got to be authentic. You love them because, yeah. for their own sake. Yes. But it's also important that you are influencing them in good ways, and they're influencing you in good ways, but not in bad ways. Yes. Right. yes. Uh, that's something to always be guarded against. Yep. And yeah. there comes times where it can get awkward because you say, you know what, I can't do that. But that can be an opportunity to share your faith. It's like, uh, here's why I can't do that. So along those lines of being a light and um, having a mix of people in your life, what is the correct Christ-like response when someone happily tells you that she is moving in with her boyfriend? Obviously, you can't support people and sinful decisions or actions, but I also want to be a friend. That's that's exactly the kind of question you're going to get a lot when you hang around with with non-Christians. But it makes a a big difference. First thing that comes to mind is ask... Ask yourself, what is the kind of relationship you have with this person? Um, what, what are the terms and expectations? Uh, have they in, is it the kind of relationship where it would be natural for you to weigh in on that? Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, because that's, that's sort of a kitchen question, if not a bedroom question, and maybe you're still out on the porch. You know, to use that kind of graded thing here. And so if, if you try to weigh in on a bedroom question when you're only a porch friend, uh, well, that can sever the whole relationship or come across as judgment or whatever. Uh, on the other hand, if this is a person that you are uh, in a kind of covenant relationship with, especially if they are a fellow believer um, and it's, you guys are holding each other accountable, then, then you'd be remiss not to begin to ask the question, well, how does this relate to your faith? How, how is this consistent? I mean, share with me how you're working this out. It's always good to ask those kind of questions, not with a, you shouldn't, thou art, you know, kind of come over kind of thing, but you just explore. Like, well, you know, what's going on here? Um, is that consistent with your faith? And, and kind of explore it that way. Yeah, I would agree that too often we either don't say anything at all because we're afraid to get into other people's business or we come across moralistically. We just sort of judge behavior and we sort of point out rights and wrongs and things like this rather than really trying to understand what's going on deeper in this friend's heart and if she is, is she going against her values? Does she not know that as a believer this is maybe not right behavior? Um, maybe she doesn't know that, or maybe she does, but she might be going against her own values. And that just tells you there's another deep value there. And rather than just talking about the behavior, you can be curious yes. and you can have conversation with her. That's I love how Jesus interacted with the woman at the well in John 4. And you know he knew that she was living with a man. Um, but he didn't come at her just condemning that or confronting that. 
he talked about her deep thirst and he used the well and the, the drink of water as a, a way to get at the whole concept mm. of the deeper longings in our hearts that he understands. And he knows that we do things for a reason. All our behavior is for a reason and an understandable reason in God's eyes. Jesus understood that this woman was thirsty for love and affirmation. She was looking for it from men and he didn't condemn her. He was gentle and sensitive to her and he talked about deep thirst and he tried to gently point her to the, a, a direction that there's living water that can only be found in him. Mm-hmm. And so the thing you're really thirsty for that results in this behavior, hey, there's something else that can satisfy that over here. And I think we can have those kind of conversations with people. Sure, sure. Yep. So we are going to be asking our last question um, due to time. Thank you all who sent in your questions via Great text questions. Love and email. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's been good discussion. So this one is... Um, tender and it's very current, but the question was texted in, how are Christians to respond to events like Ferguson, especially when there's such division on the situation? Mm. Yeah, good. That's excellent. Bless you, Sue. (laughs) (laughs) It's absolutely um, crucial. And here, it it, uh, makes a difference uh, what context you're in, uh, who you're talking to, uh, what, what, what the audience is, uh, what their assumptions are. Um, I, I really like what one person tweeted re- uh, recently. Because um, right now, see, they said this. It was Brian Zane uh, on Twitter, and he said um, something to the effect of, my heart's broken. I know that I don't know what the jury knew. Um, but I know that if I was black, I'd be angry. And, and it just kind of expressed that, 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 that reality. Um, the thing is, as a white person, I, it'd be easy for me not to know what I don't know. And what a lot of white folks, this is why these events always bring out this tremendous divide, is because to a large degree, whites and blacks and other non-whites live in different worlds. Um, and... Um, Unless you are in relationship with someone that is in that world, you won't know about all the kind of things that they bump into because you don't bump into them. If you're privileged, you float in this kind of stratosphere of privilege, and you don't bump into all the walls that other people beneath you bump into. And so when they bump into them and they say the police aren't being fair, well, you've always known them to be fair. They've never been unfair to you. So you say, no, come on, police are fair. Uh, And it's important... Not to say that you know that the jury was wrong or whatever, but to empathize with a group of people who have far too many of their kids get killed. Just in Cleveland, two days ago, another 12-year-old kid got shot. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, there is something very wrong with the system when you have such... The, the, the st- statistically, per capita, the likelihood of being shot if you're an African-American male is way more than if you're uh, uh, white. Uh, and so there's something broken there. And I don't have the answers for this, but it's good to, just em- to be able to express empathy towards it yeah. and not be locked into your, your privileged perspective. Yeah, I, I think this breaks God's heart. And I, I think we know enough to, to know that there's racism, there's injustice, and as Greg said, there's a disproportionate amount of unjust things that are happening systemically that are hitting on the African-American community. So we know that. And that breaks God's heart. And so when whatever happened in Ferguson, we don't know the details of that. But the way that this is playing out really does have to do with the systemic injustice and the oppression that's happened uh, on individual levels as well as just across whole populations in our country. 
And so I think that breaks God's heart. And Absolutely. I think our attitude needs to be different than the world in the sense of, you know, we're supposed to model a third way uh, through these kinds of situations. It's an opportunity for us as believers to show that we want to stand in solidarity with any oppressed group and, any, uh, and stand against injustice in any form. Jesus did that, but he, he never uh, got to the point of hating oppressors. He saw all people as oppressed. And he, yet it broke his heart. Oppression and injustice broke his heart. Mm-hmm. So I think empathizing, being sad about it, it saddens me every time I see the news story and <clears> think about what's really going on. Um, and not to slip into a vicious kind of anger or judgment because that would be anti-kingdom. Jesus models us a different way, and we have to find our way to, to reflect that in every one of these opportunities that comes up. And not just then empathize, what can we do to actively maybe bring a difference as well? Mm-hmm. Those are very difficult questions as well. Yeah, it's, it's a real balance to not fall into the anger, and yet to be able to understand why... Uh, if you, were, if you were black, you'd be angry. I mean, to, to legitimize that, because uh, there's something terribly wrong with this, this uh, system. I'm curious, what scripture do the three of you rely upon when it comes to relationships? What scripture? <laughs> just one. There's only one. one. Wow. Yeah, there's a zillion. I, I just want to go back to one that Greg opened the series with when he first started on week one. If any of you were here, he talked about when Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. And so Jesus is talking about loving here, and he's saying this is a new commandment. And in reality, love isn't a new commandment. It's all over the Old Testament and the New Testament. But what was new about it, as Greg pointed out in the first week, was to love as Jesus loves us. And the unique and radically different way that Jesus loves. And then there's a whole zillion scriptures about that. But I think the, the point there is that we can only extend that kind of love to the degree that we've received that. So there's a passage in the Bible that says, we love because he first loved us. And so for me, if we're not taking in that radical Jesus kind of love, we're not going to be able to give out that radical Jesus kind of love. So it's first taking it in from him and cultivating a, a personal relationship with his love. That's the one I would Amen. go to. That's why uh, yeah, James says that, that uh, loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself is the royal law. Paul says the same thing. It fulfills the whole law. Jesus says the same thing. And so if, if that's your bullseye, um, then everything else that needs to get covered will get covered. If we put the law before love and look for rules, like what particular verses can we look at? You know, what are the rules about relationship? You'll never get it to apply to the particularities of your particular relationship, your particular issue. And it can get misapplied in different ways. Um, and so it's important to uh, get all your life from Christ, your love from Christ, and live in that love. And that will, gives you a wisdom as to how to apply different verses in particular situations. So that is, I think, the uh, be imitators of God, live in love as Jesus Christ loved us. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. That would be my key verse. Wow, that leaves me. Huh? <laughs> what they said. Um, Ditto. Well, if I go to, obviously start there, but go to a very sort of practical place... Um, I, I think still Philippians has just got some great wisdom about being your best self. So I think we're all uniquely and perfectly designed by God, and we have to figure out what that is and how we live our best self all the time. And I think there's great wisdom in the fact that we are not supposed to be worrying. We are supposed to be praising God and rejoicing. We are supposed to be looking for the things in the world that do work. And how do we stay positive and rejoice in the goodness of what we are and what other people are. doesn't mean we're blind, but I think that we do need to be focusing on what's possible versus what's not. 
Excellent. I'll throw that one in. Awesome. Very good. Thank you. Um, you have said that at some point it may be necessary to exit someone's life. Can you tell of a time when Jesus did this? Is it biblical to do this? By exit someone's life, they mean leave the relationship, not kill them. Right? Just to, I'm assuming that. That's the assumption, yes. <laughs> you know, I, I think of the time, you know, that, that rich young ruler uh, where he said he wanted to follow Jesus, and Jesus, seeing his heart and what the obstacle was, said, okay, fine, go and sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. And uh, I couldn't do that. And so Jesus was very, very sad, but he let it go. He walked away. Uh, and so, yeah, there's... Sometimes it's appropriate. Yeah, I, I think this is a, a story Jesus told rather than something that he did, but you're familiar with the prodigal son story. And that is a story about letting go. Love lets the other one go. The son in the prodigal son story you know, uh, left home. Uh, the father gave him his inheritance early. He left home. And so the father let his young son go instead of trying to keep him there and pull him back. But he was always waiting for him to come back. He was grieving that he was gone. But love can't control. We can't force people to stay in relationship with us. And sometimes the most loving thing is to let them go their way and let them um, make their choices. Still hope, still pray, still wait. In that story, the beautiful thing is that the father was right, standing right on the edge of not crossing the line of you know, controlling and, and violating free will of his son. But he was always looking and waiting day after day after day for the son to come back. So I think, but he did let him go. Um, so I think that's a story Jesus models for us. Not sure if you would add anything. I'll say, being the non-theologian here, I just think of the story where Jesus says, "You know, go to the house, and if you're not received, you can dust off your feet and 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 shake off the dust and go." You know, Romans one says uh, three times that God gave them over. It's like He tries to to turn their hearts, tries, stays in in their life, trying to turn people people around. But there's a point where when God sees that that's just enabling them to get deeper in their sin, God turns them over, says, I have to let you go your own way. In fact, that is the way God judges throughout the Bible. He simply withdraws. That is the, ju- the wrath of God, the judgment of God. With a grieving heart, he, he says, I've got to let you go, hoping still that you'll learn the hard way. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's a, a pattern that I think we're wise to follow. When there's something that's dead, you leave it, go. All right. I know several people in my family and at work who are conflict-adverse, so they avoid talking about everyday problems. When they get really frustrated, they blow up and verbally vomit everything on their mind. Nice. Awesome. After the argument, they clam up again. This is frustrating for me because it seems like our relationship never gets healthier. Do you have any advice? Well, yes. I, I mean, when I just think about how we do relationship... If we go back to how the brain is wired to work, often what's going on is when the blow-up is happening, we're functioning out of the emotional part of our brain, our amygdala, we're probably in an emotionally hijacked state. And when you have two amygdalas talking to each other, you have an argument. So what you want to do is not try to solve things when you're in that place. It is important, however, to go back. And when you're in a relation trying to make the relationship healthier or work through issues, it really does need to happen when you can get two smart thinking brains communicating. So it needs to be happening in a time when people are at their best. And also, I think, just learning to use words skillfully that don't just reignite the emotional brain again. Mm. So we keep us, you know, two people having an intellectual conversation even about emotional things. Is there anything you'd say to the person where, uh, in this case, it sounds like the person just won't talk about it, 
Uh, they just avoid it and yeah. avoid it and then have a blow up. Any advice on how to open up a person like that? Yes. So, again, I'm going to just stick with the brain because it's kind of what I know. Your, your smart thinking brain responds to questions better than statements. So often we start these conversations that are going to be a little contentious with a statement, like you do this mm-hmm. or you something. If you can start these conversations with a question where you're wondering, you want to understand, you want to get more information, your amygdala is much less apt to fire off in that situation. And your thinking brain's much more apt to actually get the question and be able to answer it. So like a... Why are you such a stupid hothead? And that, yeah, that would work. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay, and by the way, just because you put a que- you know, your voice goes up at the end, it does not mean it's a good question. Yeah, or even a question at all. I guess I should have clarified that. A good question. Yeah. I, I think in my experience of working with folks in conflict, I find that people tend to be more conflict avoidant than they are confronters. Um, and, and then they tend to confront because they've avoided. So there's this avoid, avoid, build up, build up, stuff it, stuff it, and then blow pattern. And so I think a lot of times, though, people want to keep the peace or they're just intimidated or afraid to go to another person to, to address an issue. Um, or they'll just say, well, hey, let's leave well enough alone. Let, let sleeping dogs lie. So everything's going really well right now. If it's not broke, don't fix it. So let's just kind of ride this out. But inevitably, if you have some chronic relational problems, they are going to rear their ugly heads again. And so sweeping the stuff under the, under the rug, just it's going to be there. You've got to deal with it. So I agree totally with Sue. It's a matter of somehow finding a mutual agreement that, hey, let's work on this proactively. Remember that problem we had a couple weeks ago? Let's bring that out right now and proactively talk about it, and let's make some agreement on how we're going to talk about it um, so that we can not have this pattern continue. Because it's going to continue, just like you know, a volcano builds up and then erupts. The, the problems are going to rear their heads again if we don't deal with them proactively. An interesting statistic <clears throat> researched by Gottman would indicate that 69% of all problems within marriages are perpetual, yeah. meaning they're not solvable. Like you're, you're never going to come up with the pers- perfect resolution. <laughs> uh, but they are manageable. So these conversations need to be about how are we going to manage this thing that we are probably never going to completely yeah. agree upon. Yeah. So in Ephesians 4, it says, speak the truth in love. And the word truth there, aletheia, uh, means to, to be uncovered, uh, to, be, to be revealed. And I, well, I guess what we're saying is don't wait until a conflict before you start speaking the truth in love. That's usually what happens is you get mad enough now, you say the truth, but it doesn't come out in a way it's going to be received because both people's amygdala are activated. So live in that. Because usually, I think, in, in relationships, we know that something's being hidden, the elephant in the room, the things we're not talking about, the things we're dancing around. We know that they're there, but it's just like uh, if I touch it, then it may cause a problem, and I'm enjoying this little piece right now. But uh, to speak the truth, to live in that, to live in the light, means bring it out. Get it out there while people are calm, and that way you don't have to be perpetuating the cycle. All right. So this person says, I know someone who is very direct and to me seems a bit critical and judgmental. I have talked to this person about it, but their response is, that's just how I am. This person is super smart and doesn't seem to be trying to hurt anyone's feelings, but yet they do. Is it true that God made us a particular way and the rest of us just have to deal with it? (laughs) That's my answer. (laughs) Well, we need to talk. I'll jump in on that one just to start. So, yeah, I'll I'll take the last part of that. It is true that God has made us different. So there's a lot of, a ton of research for decades that on temperament. And so the hardwiring is what I often refer to this as. We come into the world with basic differences in our temperament, which... 
uh, affects everything, how we perceive the world, what we notice, what we don't notice, what motivates us, how we decide things. And so there's a zillion ways to be different. And as Sue said, those are the 69% of things that aren't resolvable because we're, we're wired that way. So we're going to bump into those differences a lot. And so, yeah, it's true that we're, we're wired differently. God made us different. And some people tend to speak before they think. Some people notice, as I, as I said, notice the negatives more than the positives, and they'll speak those and then come across as more critical. Um, so that's true. But it's not true that other people just need to accept that in us. They certainly do need to accept and honor and understand and even appreciate the God-given differences. But we're also called to do everything in love. And not everything about my fallen temperament is loving. So even though God wired me a certain way, I'm also a fallen person, and my wiring can play out in broken ways that aren't loving. And so the bottom line for everything is God calls us to, to love. It's always about love. Love does no harm, therefore love fulfills the law. And in this particular incident where it's about words, critical words, um, well, the Bible has a lot to say about our words. Uh, James chapter 3 talks about the power of life and death is in the tongue. We have the power to bless or curse. And, and, and he says in James that you know, the same, out of the same mouth can come blessings and curse, come sweet water and bitter water. And then he says it shouldn't be this way. And we are to control our speech and, and find ways to have blessings come out and honor, honorable speech come out of, our, uh, out of our mouths for others. And ultimately, that's what one of the fruit of the spirits is called self-control. And that means we are able to control ourselves, which means regulating that God-given temperament in ways that are loving. One of my favorite passages of all is Romans 12, too. And what I love about it is just the fact that God's very clear that we have the ability to choose and to change the way our brains are wired. So that doesn't mean becoming something you're not. But also, if you take a look at the next verse, it's talking about the fact that we can, especially in the message version, it says, you know, fall down to sort of the lowest common denominator of our culture. Because that's how we're probably going to be pulled down if we're not paying attention and living in love. So we still have to get back to, because I think it was this person comes across critical and so forth. And hurts people's feelings. Hurts people's feelings. That's, that's still a choice in terms of how we moderate what comes out. And God's very clear about the fact that we have choice and can change that. Good. We'd also like to take this moment to remind you guys to please continue to text in your questions or write them down and hand them off to Nicole. That number, again, is 651-321-3030. Okay. This person says, I loved this series except for one point. If I heard him correctly, Pastor Boyd said that that it was sometimes okay to walk away from a marriage even if no infidelity has occurred. How does this square with Jesus' teaching that it is never lawful to get divorced unless adultery has taken place? I guess I have to answer this one. <laughs> yes, take that one. It's not me. We're all moving over here. <laughs> First thing uh, I'd say is the, the, uh, the exception clause, except for the case of adultery or pornea, which can just mean immorality, um, is only found in Matthew. And Matthew is the uh, most Jewish of all the Gospels. It's written to a Jewish audience. And a lot of scholars argue, I think very com- compellingly, that the reason why that exception clause is only found in Matthew and not in the other Gospels is because uh, in Jewish culture, they had a kind of a two-stage marriage process, uh, an engagement, but that you were legally married. You had to get divorced to get out of it. And then the official uh, marriage would start with the uh, wedding, and that's when it was consummated. And uh, in that, in that uh, provisional period, or that, that, that engagement betrothed period, 
uh, you could, it was lawful to put away your wife, divorce your, your wife, uh, only for the, for if there was immorality involved. Um, and so I wouldn't treat that as sort of the, you know, the groundbreaking rule that gets you out of the marriage, uh, or that you, know, you have to divorce your spouse if there's adultery being committed. Um, I, I, you know, I don't think Jesus was giving us here a technicality uh, that applies to all marriages. I, I don't think that adultery is um, a deal-breaker. Uh, if the person is willing to forgive. In fact, I know of several marriages where that became, that, that, that was the event that shed light on the deeper issue that led to the adultery, which then got them to finally start addressing it, which turned the marriage around, and they had an exceptionally good marriage that they hadn't had before precisely because of this. So don't see this as sort of the legal deal breaker. The second thing is, I think it's really important to... Um, uh, address this issue not from a legal perspective, like what are the r- rules that can get you out of a marriage or whatever. Uh, I said in, in that message where I, I shared this that um, God deals in reality rather than legality. And what I was saying in that, in that uh, message is this, that uh, it can happen, I mean, that the reality of a marriage, a legal marriage, is that this thing is dead. It's, it's, not, it's not anything like a marriage. Um, from a biblical definition of marriage. Uh, there's, there's not a one flesh thing going on here. Uh, there may just be contempt. Now, as long as there's any hope, and that should be assessed not just by you individually, but in community with others who have perspective on this, can this corpse be resuscitated? Because sometimes they can. And I think we have a, uh, an ethical obligation as disciples to as long as there's hope, you stay in there and keep trying to resuscitate this thing. But it can happen that because of hardness of hearts and, and uh, a number of other things, that this thing is ir- irrevocably dead. And in that case, you're not really walking away from the marriage, you're just saying out loud what it is. Uh, and it's not that it's okay to do that, I, like it's, oh, fuck, I get, I'm free to walk away. It, it's a grieving thing, it's a sad thing. But a corpse has to be buried. In fact, hanging on to a corpse can start to spread disease. And that applies when people stay in an unreality. There's no reality here. They're not working towards anything. They're not trying to make it better. They're just bound by a legal document, hating each other. That, that, that begins to contaminate your soul, your spirit. It, it's, it's, it's nasty. Speak the truth. And the truth is, if this thing's hopelessly dead, then, then say that and respond accordingly. Yeah, the only thing I would add to that is hopelessly dead um, or hopelessly damaging so I feel like um, oftentimes if two people, one or the other, can't change and they're, they're damaging each other, there's enough ongoing harm, emotional harm, certainly physical harm if there's a physical abuse, but even emotional harm, if one or both of them are being ongoingly damaged and beat up in this, in this relationship and they can't seem to stop, can't seem to make any difference, they've tried everything like Greg said, they don't just jump to separation or divorce, but they've tried everything that's possible. It's certainly not uh, the best, it's not, the, it's not God's ideal, but God doesn't want that ongoing damage and that ongoing harm. As I referred to earlier from Romans, love does no harm, therefore love fulfills the law. So if we're in an ongoing relationship where we can't stop harming each other, then the best option might be to, to be separated at that point. It's a sad one, but... There's even one instance in the Old Testament where God commanded the Israelites to put away their wives because the damage being done by being married was worse than the damage of divorce. He hates divorce, uh, but there's some things he hates even more, and that's him. So we've got another marriage question. Uh, How do I handle a mother-in-law that is very strong-willed? I do not want to be disrespectful. (laughs) 
I love my mother-in-law, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we hate ours? <laughs> I don't have one yet. <laughs> That's why it, it, it goes. Here we go. It must be you, Greg. All right. Um, it, it, it's all about boundaries. Uh, you know, they're, they're, it's that leave and cleave. Uh, and uh, parents need to let their kids go and form a new unit and not be intrusive on that, and, except to the degree that they're invited in, to, to weigh in on things. Um, and if they don't honor that, if you have a mother-in-law who, or father-in-law or whatever who is always you know, trying to impose their will in the relationship, that can begin to really disrupt. I've seen it disrupt. I've even seen it destroy uh, marriages um, because it then sets the, the, the couple against each other. Yeah. Uh, it needs to be the case that the husband and wife form a united front, come to an agreement about what should be done, the boundaries that need to be in place with the mother-in-law, and then you just insist that she honors those boundaries. Um, and you do it in as loving a way as you can, uh, communicating it as nice as you can, so it's got a greater chance of being received. But at the end of the day, you have to say, you know, here's where we would like your input, and here's where we don't want your input. And you've got to honor that. And, yeah. Yeah, I agree completely that the most important thing is that nothing gets in between that marital bond, that oneness bond, so that the husband and wife are unified, they're on the same page, not even other family members. The other thing I would say, though, is that this is framed as mother-in-law, and I wonder, what if it was your mother? If it was your own mother, would you reach out and try to repair and reconcile the relationship? Is there something different because you're thinking this is mother-in-law? Well, one of the thoughts I would have about that is that when uh, two people come together in marriage, their lives merge and the families merge. There's a oneness that occurs. And so the way I tend to look at it is my wife's mother is actually my mother as well. Two families merge, and now I'm responsible for a direct relationship with her, and I'm responsible for all the scriptural imperatives about speaking the truth in love, uh, bearing and enduring a lot of things, um, and addressing more serious things with her, doing it gently and in love, and having my own direct relationship with her. It's not you know, my spouse's job to deal with her mother. It's my mother. I've, a, I've become a son to her, and she's become a mom to me. And so now I'm responsible for a direct relationship of love and reconciliation with her. Good. So. The only thing I, I would like to add is, uh, I mentioned this in uh, one of the messages, that um, sometimes it's helpful, uh, maybe always, to a- ask the question, why is she being so strong-willed? I mean, that's kind of her temperament. But often, there, in fact, maybe always, there's a positive intention behind this. Uh, maybe the mother-in-law is genuinely concerned that if you don't raise your kids right, by her definition of right, they're going to you know, become druggies or something. Um, and so I shared that one example of this couple who had this very problem. Uh, and as they were sharing, I felt I got a word from the Lord. Because I was kind of getting mad at this mother-in-law uh, and the way it was dividing the, this couple. But then I asked the, the wife, who was the, paying the price the most for this mother-in-law's intrusiveness, do you think maybe your mother-in-law is, trying, is seeing you as her do-over? Because she had a husband walk out on her, and maybe out of that fear, she's projecting that onto you guys, and, and, and she's just trying to spare you the pain that she's in. And that completely reframed their interaction with her. And so they were able to come and start asking her questions, like, you know, wh- why she's uh, always making these statements, and, and is, there, is there some pain that she's trying to protect uh, the, the, the wife from? And the wife even could now thank her for having good intentions, even though the way she was living those out was not appropriate. Uh, but, uh, yeah, ask the question, why are they, what's their concern? And address that concern. Uh, try to reassure them that, that you're, you know, their concern doesn't apply here. She doesn't need to worry about that. 
Okay, so do you have any, any advice about what it looks like to reconcile with someone who you had a past romantic relationship with? Now, to clarify, I'm not talking about how to get back together with this person. We are both Christians, and I guess that means we'll be together in heaven for eternity. But there is still a lot of hurt between us. What does practical forgiveness and brother-sister reconciliation look like in this situation? Want to grab that one? Uh, Part of it is, we talked a little bit last night, just even about the idea of reconciliation. Yeah. And the fact that reconciliation has to be a two-way street. Yeah. Mm. So, you know, I don't know what the other person wants in this. So is this person just feeling guilty? Are they feeling bad? Do they need closure? That's one thing. But reconciliation would actually require both parties have the same interest in wanting to reconcile. So that would be my first question is, are both people in play? Yeah, I would wonder that as well. And but because this is a past romantic relationship, I would also kind of wonder: Are there some still strong feelings on the part of this person that haven't been let go? And so it might be that you know this person is wanting to pull back this person in the, in the relationship instead of kind of moving on. And I don't know if either one of these folks are now married and they have a spouse involved as well at this point, because that would make it complicated. But for sure, there's hurt, and so. Uh, if, if both parties were willing to sit down and process through the hurt so that maybe they didn't end that relationship well, they could go back and sort of end it well. And if the other party was willing to do that, that would obviously be the best thing. But if they're not willing to do it, this one person, it's, it's a matter of doing their own forgiveness work. Uh, that hurt yeah. and pain is an indicator that there's still something being held on to and, and, and the hurt and the wrong and whatever the case might be, the loss. And so it would be good for this person to do their own forgiveness work and their own letting go work, um, letting the other person go. And it may be a case of asking for forgiveness. Could be that. They may not be feeling good about their part in what happened. Very good. Sure, yeah, it could be motivated by a kind of guilt. Yes. uh, But that's where it's really important to realize that that, um, you can forgive on your own. You can't reconcile on your own. And so uh, there needs to be a, a forgiving of yourself, a forgiving of the other person. Uh, and then you maybe apologize to them for whatever you know wrongs you have done, but you can't. I mean, they may not apologize back. They may you not want anything to do with you, and you have to be okay with that. Uh, and there, I would say to say that to forgive someone uh, for wrongs that were done has got to involve stopping the tapes of the, the wrong they did. Because yep. if you keep on running those, you're going to keep on feeling this this. Uh, you owe me kind of sense, uh, this, this anger, and you know, wanting, wanting something that they're not going to give you. And so to, to release the person, that's all forgiveness is, is also to release the image of them and to get that out of your mind and to turn your thoughts to, like uh, Philippians 4, 8 says, well, what sort of things are good and what sort of things are true and beautiful and honorable. Think on those things. Uh, to, so to be disciplined in your mind about turning in a different direction. It's also really important, because it is a romantic relationship, to ask for God's wisdom about these kind of things because... If the person has moved on and is now in another, another relationship or married, it may be totally inappropriate for you to show up anytime and have wanted to have a, you know, let's mend things kind of a deal. Uh, or to apologize for wrongs you've done. Um, I know one couple where a person showed up from the past and apologized for some uh, sexual misconduct, and the husband had no idea that his wife had had this misconduct, and it was nasty. So he had to use a lot of uh, wisdom on these sorts of things. Okay. How do I? It's reality. Sorry. Sorry. 
how do I set healthy boundaries with an ex-spouse who is in denial about his struggle with alcoholism when we are trying to co-parent a nine-year-old son together? We have shared custody split 50-50. Wow. That's messy. Yeah, these the boundary questions are pretty common these last couple of weeks about that. And so, yeah, I don't, there's not enough information for me to know how to speak to this fully, but um, if the, the ex-husband is still involved in drinking and alcohol use and unhealthy behavior that way, um, you know, if they got 50-50 custody, I think, you know, you gotta, you, you can't control the whole situation. If the husband, if his drinking is endangering the child at all, um, then that would be something you'd want to address and confront with him and help him change that. And if need be, if he's not changing that, you'd maybe need to bring the, the larger family into play or the authorities into play and maybe get a different custody arrangement. But if he's not endangering the child at all and just you're not, you just don't like the fact that he's drinking, unfortunately that's something you have to find a way to live with. As long as in his drinking he's not mistreating you and the, the, the volatility of the relationship between the two parents isn't kind of thrown off, you might not like that he's drinking, but if it's not endangering the child, um, it's just an irritation. That's something you have to accept and live with. And from your side of the parenting, just help your child to understand that and, and have a different value system around that. But uh, you know, you can set personal boundaries for sure and say, well, uh, let's do the exchange more minimally. Let's have somebody else do the handoff of, of our child. Um, you can set personal boundaries that way. But he has 50-50 custody, and so he has the right to be in his child's life unless there's any sort of endangerment or neglect or abuse as a result of the drinking. It's a good word. <clears throat> Not good if you guys have no, anything no, else to say. That's good. Okay. Um, this person says that um, they, they suffered years of emotional and verbal abuse in a marriage, but there, have, there has been reconciliation and forgiveness, um, and they're still in the marriage. Um, the husband has asked for forgiveness, the wife has forgiven, but there's still mistrust. So she wants to know how can she heal the wounds and learn to trust again so that their marriage can be renewed. Great question. It sounds like a brain question to me. <laughs> <laughs> trust. Well, trust is just such an interesting one because we all perceive it so differently. Um, wow, I'm a little stumped on this. Well, I, I, I would say, you know, just as a first volley here, that um, I, probably if the person is having trouble trusting, I mean, for, for, one, uh, for one thing, trust, regaining trust after long periods of abuse where you've been justified mistrusting, it's going to take time. Yes. And the, the husband needs to understand that it's going to take a lot of time showing a different kind of behavior um, to begin to win the, the trust of this uh, wife back. And so... Yeah. Give yourself time, and the husband's got to give time. It's going to be a process. And it always takes longer than you'd like, and that's just kind of the way it is. Um, but the other thing is that, as it's appropriate, as this husband is, in fact, walking in a different way, changing his behavior and all of that, uh, then if this person, if the wife continues to mistrust, I strongly suspect, this is why I thought it was a brain question, that's because she's running, she keeps running tapes and, and soundtracks and all of that in her mind about the past abuse. Um, as long as you can keep running those tapes, all our emotions are always associated with, with what's going on between our ears. And so as long as she's running those tapes and soundtracks and all that, she's going to be experiencing yes. mistrust. And so uh, part of what it means to for really forgive, as I said in the last question, is to release not just the debt they owe, but also the tapes that you have of them owing to you. And, and, and 
purify your mind. Uh, take every thought captive to Jesus Christ. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Think on what's true and lovely and good and all those passages. So, yeah, it's, uh, I think... Uh, yeah, trust rebuilding is, is tricky, and, and I agree completely, Greg, that it takes time. I'm assuming in this scenario that the husband is no longer doing that behavior, the abusive behavior. If yeah, he is, then trust will not be rebuilt, and it shouldn't yeah. be. Yeah. But if he has really stopped, then it still will take some time to rebuild that. And my understanding or definition of trust is that it's expectation based on evidence. So it's expecting positive things from a person based, based on the evidence of their capacity to give you those things. And so if he's broken trust, he was showing evidence of untrustworthiness. And so what she'll need is just some time for evidence to build up or accrue of his trustworthiness. And you can't speed that up. You can remove barriers to the rebuilding of trust, but you can't speed up the trust-building process. It's a process of gaining evidence of trustworthiness over time. Now, if there are barriers, it could be exactly that she's replaying those tapes that are distrustful. She's doing distrust in her head, um, and, and, and maybe she's just fearful. So I think if, if it's not, if trust isn't kind of growing on its own because he's showing different behaviors of trustworthiness, then they probably just need maybe some therapy or counseling to help them in the rebuilding process, to help her maybe understand how she's, maybe what the barriers are in, in her mind, in her heart. Well, and I think a big part of that, which pulls us together, is what are you looking for? So if you're in a relationship, you get what you're looking for pretty much. So if you are looking for mistrusting behavior, so any tiny little thing that happens now turns into, oh, you always do that, or you've always done that, you are going to find it, because no one can operate at 100% perfect every day. If you are looking for how... <laughs> I've, I've been talking to Shelly. Strike that from the tape. Not so close. <laughs> but if you're looking for where's the evidence of new behavior, where's yeah. the evidence of change, where's the evidence of sincere effort, yeah. you're going to find that as well. So I think any time it is trust, it's a cycle, but it's a cycle that's built on are you trying to move towards that person or are you trying to, to move away from them? Mm-hmm. Good. Thank you, guys. One more. Thank you. Yep. So we are coming upon our very last question. Thank you all for um, sending in your questions, submitting, and, and being a part of this today. So for your final question, uh, there has been a lot of information covered in this series. If I were to remember only one, just one thing, or could only teach my children one thing about relationships, what would it be? <laughs> The gold nugget. <laughs> the gold nugget. It was kind of the first question in a way. I mean, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. I would say get all your life and yeah. worth, significance, yeah. security, lovability from Jesus Christ, your core need for that, so that you enter into all your relationships, not to try to get your needs met, but out of a fullness of the reality that your needs has already gotten met. Uh, that's uh, the linchpin of everything. Yeah, I would, I would echo that. Uh, just absolutely having your heart be anchored in God's love and having him be the source of of identity and worth and value and belonging and connection and purpose, all those deep longings that we have. I think of how Jesus was able to navigate through the world differently and and talk about turning the other cheek, but actually turn the other cheek and not feel threatened by people um, so that he pulled away from them and not need things from them so that he was drawing towards them to get something because he found all of his life from the Father. One of the most beautiful passages, I think, is in John 13, the night before Jesus uh, goes to the cross. He, it says he takes a towel, girds himself, takes a basin, of, a basin of water, kneels at his disciples' feet, and he's serving and washing the feet of humans who were not very loving. They, they certainly weren't. They had been denied. They were going to deny him and betray him and all kinds of things, scatter. 
and, and leave him all by himself. But the way Jesus was able to do that in John 13, it says, Jesus, knowing who he was, that he had come from the Father, and that he was returning to the Father, took a towel and knelt at the feet of his disciples. So it was all about his identity. He knew who he was in the Father. He knew that he had come forth from the Father and was going back to the Father. His whole identity was grounded in the Father's love and value of him. And I would say that's the single most important thing we need. Well, and I would say taking that same thing and just spinning it a little further is constantly reminding yourself that everyone you're dealing with was also made in God's image. Very good. And God gives them unsurpassable value and love and worth. And even though they may have gotten kind of bogged down by our culture and our world and whatever it is that has, you know, created who they are right now, at the center of the center of who they are, they are still made in God's image. Mm -hmm. Excellent. All right, this sermon series was very helpful, but so many of the relationship examples that were used involve romantic and marriage relationships. I'm an older single woman who has never been married, and I'm starting to feel fear that I never will. What advice do you have for us singles who ache for deep, intimate relationships in a world where, there seems, where that seems to only happen for married people? What place do we single people have in the church? Good question. Sue. Why do I feel people looking at me? <laughs> we'll let you go. <laughs> single. All right. I guess I'll field this one. I've got a lot to say on it, so reel me in. She's single, but I have to say this. Okay, I say this. Sure. Uh, just the other week, uh, she got engaged. So wonderful, wonderful man. If you're out there, you're wonderful. Um, Yes, so a little context. Uh, I am getting married, which I'm very excited about, and this is my first marriage. So I have spent, obviously, the vast majority of my adult life in the same camp. One of those diamonds in the rough finally got found. That's right, that's right. So yes, do I have a lot to say on the subject? I do. Uh, Let me think. First of all, I would like to just put uh, something out there to all the married friends of these single people. All right? We know you're helpful. We know we whine a lot. I get it. It's a hard position to be in. So have a little patience. But be really careful about how you use scripture when you want to try and support people. Yes, we've all read 1 Corinthians 7 in detail, up, down, back, forth. We all know what Paul said is being single is good. It's, you know, celibacy is a fantastic thing. But he also said, you know, if you have passion and you're burning, get married. Um, You know, it goes on and on. He also says, you know, being married is not that easy. You're going to hit struggle and strife. So just be careful. I have no idea what he's talking about there. (laughs) Yeah, and then I don't know. One of my favorites that I get often or have gotten often in my life is, but see, it's so good. This way you can just be Jesus' bride. Um, You can be married to him. And I'm like, what? What? All right. So be careful when you start flinging out individual scriptures trying to make them feel better because it doesn't help, let me just tell you. Uh, The reality of it is it is a... It's just a challenging, challenging place to have to live because it is the desire of your heart. And God does say, you know, he's going to fulfill the desire of your heart. And we're supposed to knock and seek and ask, and he will answer. And, you know, some people have bloody knuckles. Going, ah. <laughs> um, <laughs> what I can say in terms of having lived this life for a while is, number one, it is absolutely critical to make sure you know where your identity and your self-worth lies. First and foremost, and that applies to everyone, 
whether you're single or not. But that is one of the most rock-solid things I've Marriage will not complete you. Correct. Yes, exactly. Uh, the second thing I would say is our, do what you can to be the best version of you that you can be. Because I think often in the dating process, people want to start saying, well, I need to be like this so that person will like me. Or maybe if I'm more like this, people would like me more. That's just God designed you perfectly and uniquely. The question is, do you know who you are? Do you know what your gifts and talents are? And are you living in that? Because that helps not only in the dating marriage process, but it just helps you live a more content life which is also what we are called to do, is to find places to be content. Mm -hmm. When we're our best selves, living in our best self, we are going to be more content. Um, And then was there something about where do we fit into the church? Yes, where do we single people, um, what place do we have in the church? Yeah, and I think that I get that too. And there are some churches that accommodate or have more things for people who are single than others. And I think you need to take that into consideration when you're figuring out where you're going to go. But I'd also say, if you're just showing up to church to find a mate, well, that would be a great place to find one. That is really not what this is about. All right? And the interesting thing I find with single groups is most people join single groups so they can get out of the group. (laughs) Know what I mean? Yeah. Again, you need to keep your focus on where are you? Who did God design you to be? And how do you be the best self you can be? And make sure your self-worth is attached to where it should be. And I just want to say, you know, I did find the last absolutely fantastic, amazing man left out there in the world. So, sorry, everybody. (laughs) That's all I've got to say about that. Thanks, Sue. That was good. Well, yeah, I I just like to add one thing. And that is, I I would think that... um, this is important for married and unmarried, but for uh, single people, it's all the more important to have real or seek out good friendships. Yes. Um, yep. the, you know, don't put anything any of that on hold as you're hoping to for, to find your mate. Uh, but uh, deep friendships, while I'm not going to say it, you know cures everything and you know takes away that longing for yep. romance, uh, they can be just absolutely profound and satisfying. Uh, we tend to, uh, in our culture, put all the eggs in one basket, and that's marriage. We have this idealistic view of marriage. Whereas throughout history, up until very recently, um, marriage was mainly for reproduction, and the satisfying relationship stuff was done outside of marriage. Uh, now, it's changed, and I think it's a good thing, at least in some respects. But still, um, uh, find some fulfillment in the relationships you have with others. Absolutely. That's a good point, Greg, and that brings us to our next question. Um, it's a good lead-in. It says, um, you mentioned friendship several times in the series, but didn't get into too much detail or you didn't get too deep. So here's my question. Do you think men and women can have a close, intimate friendship together without things getting weird? It seems that Jesus did this with women like Mary and Martha, but most of the time I see this happen in the world, things get weird. What is a kingdom perspective on opposite-sex friendships? Yeah, I'm assuming get weird means get romantic. Romantic attraction that kind of confounds the friendship process, I would guess. Yeah, that's a tricky one. Um, you know, Obviously, Jesus was able to navigate that through. I think one of the scriptures that comes to mind for me on that is in 1 Timothy. I can't remember the chapter and verse, but 
he tells us to, he says that we're to relate to young women as those, their sisters. And so there's this sister or there's this family reality in the kingdom that makes us brothers and sisters with other believers. And so I feel like if we see each other that way, that does make possible this kind of relationship. But the thing is, is that it's really only going to be possible if both people see it that way. So if you're wanting to have a friendship with somebody of the opposite sex, um, and you're looking at them as a brother or sister, that's really only going to work if they also are going to keep it in that slot and say, well, this is brother or sister, not the, the other kind of romantic dimension. So I think both people, if one or the other or both are looking for something else or needed to be something else, that's going to just make a friendship tricky. And I think that's where the problems come. But we can have a brother-sister relationship. And if both people are willing to look at it that way, that, that would be awesome. That's maybe where the, the idea of covenant comes in handy. Covenant just being uh, you know, love formalized or getting explicit about what the terms, the conditions, the expectations, the commitments of this relationship are. Because if one person's in there looking for you know, the romance, the other one has no interest in that, you're setting yourself up for a lot of pain and conflict, rejection, things like that. I, 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 I would add this, that... Uh, that's, this question is especially important if the person you are uh, becoming good friends with is, is married. Uh, and there you have to, uh, the relationship should be determined not just by the person, but also by their spouse. And uh, if, you know, it should go no further and get no more intimate than the spouse is comfortable with. Uh, and a good rule of thumb is, as you're relating together, uh, if it ever happens that you relate together uh, when the spouse isn't there differently than when the spouse is there or would be there, something's wrong. So everything you do should be done exactly as it would be if the spouse was right there with you. Yeah, good point. Got some amens yep. on that one. Got some amens on <laughs> <Amen>. that one. <laughs> okay, this person is 53 and has been divorced for seven years. Um, they had planned on remaining single, and while this has been lonely, they had come to accept it because Jesus taught that getting remarried makes them an adulterer. But this person became friends with a wonderful Christian about nine months ago, and in the last three months, this has evolved to the point where they are both deeply in love. Um, And it feels so right, but this person is struggling with the fact that they feel like they cannot get remarried. Um, Is it possible that God would want this for us? Okay. Let me take a first swing at that one. Um, Yeah, this is an important question. A lot of people people face this. You know, God hates divorce. Because marriage is supposed to be lifelong, uh, but there came a time where we find in Deuteronomy where he allowed for it uh, and uh, was willing to bend his ideals uh, because he saw that not getting remarried was uh, not not uh, a viable option for most women at the time. And so he said, you know, condition it all. Let's make the best of this situation. And you find that throughout the Old Testament, uh, when Jesus comes and gives his teaching, his 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 role is not to tighten up the legal belt of the Old Testament. What he's doing there is he's addressing these Pharisees, Sadducees, who are having these debates about what were the justified, righteous conditions of divorce. Um, and some had a very liberal view, some had a very conservative view, and they were fighting among each other, and they asked Jesus, you know, what, what's your idea on this? What are, what are the legal conditions on which you can divorce? And Jesus, as he always does, he, cuts, he, he doesn't play in the legal currency at all. He plays in the reality currency. So to, to cut them off of the knees, to get rid of their self-righteousness, he says, haven't you, he brings them back to God's ideal. Don't you remember, in, in, in the beginning, God said, let, let them become one flesh, and what God has joined together, let no one put asunder. So he's saying, you guys are asking the wrong question. You can't feel justified in, in getting a divorce. Now, divorce will happen, but you can't feel justified in that. Here's the God's ideal. In fact, Jesus says, 
and the New Testament teaches that uh, anything, anytime uh, a couple come together, uh, become one flesh, get intimate. Uh, the ideal is for them to then be in a covenant for their whole life. And anything other than that is a break from the ideal. And, and in that sense is adultery. In fact, even thinking about it, Jesus says, is adultery. Okay, now he's, he's, his point there is always to get us to the point where we, are, are, we collapse our self-righteousness. Uh, we understand that we're on the mercy of God. We've fallen from God's ideal. All you know, marriage, sex before marriage, think about sex before marriage, anyone other than your first partner, all of that constitutes adultery compared to God's ideal. But now, is God saying, therefore, you know, try to get back to the first person you ever thought about having sex with? <laughs> I, I don't think so. Uh, he's not dealing with in, in legalities here. And the, the, the question is, what is best for you, given the, the history of your life, what is best for you here and now? And yes, it's a break from God's ideal. It's a plan B or a plan C or a plan D, but most of us are working on a plan Y or Z, you know? So... <laughs> Uh, I, my answer is yes. If if this person, if if you both have feeling that this is something that is of God, that you know you have confirmation about it, those in your relationship have confirmation about it, uh, then I don't think there's uh, any reason why you uh, that couldn't be God's will for you. Okay, we've had a couple of questions about this particular subject um, in regards to the kingdom perspective. Um, on homosexuality, and one question in particular um, was about gay marriage. So what if a gay person is getting married to another gay person, isn't going to a gay wedding or being in a gay wedding as a groomsman or bridesmaid supporting the sin? How should a Christian deal with this, especially if it's a family member? Hmm. Question. Hot potato. (laughs) We're looking at the theologian. (laughs) Chicken. Yeah. <laughs> I actually have been asked this a number of times, and um, here, here's the, the question I respond with is this. Uh, would you have this question if uh, the couple was greedy, or if they were gluttons, uh, or if they gossiped a lot, or if they just idolized their jobs or the looks of their appearance or whatever? Uh, would you have this question if they were involved in anything else that falls short of God's ideal? And the answer is invariably no, which raises the question, why do you have it now? Uh, there's, there's, and it's because there's a long tradition in the church uh, that people get socialized into where they're, they're just conditioned to put this in an exceptional category. Uh, and the church has put it in an exceptional category, the deal breaker thing, because, um, well, you can be pretty sure that the majority of the people that are in your audience aren't gay, so it's one you can all feel righteous about. However, whatever losers we are, at least we're not guilty of that one. And, uh, and, and so you feed off of that. It's just what religion does. And so without realizing, we're socialized into this different perspective. But if you ask, where is there justification for this in Scripture or anything else? Uh, there's none. We should be far more concerned about whether to attending a wedding of people who are greedy than if they're gay, because you find a whole lot more about greed than you do about gayness. Um, and, and the other thing is that I, I would ask people, like, why often what's driven this is, is a concern for how, how you look. Well, I look like I, you know, am going to... Well, I, and what's interesting is Jesus never worried about that. And he went to parties with prostitutes and tax collectors. Uh, and the religious people, they're like birds of a feather flock together. Naughty Jesus. Uh, but Jesus didn't seem to care. Uh, religious people, you're worried about religious people. What, what are they going to think? And uh, uh, I would really encourage you, love, you love people where they're at. And um, uh, it's, it'd be, I would think if this, these people are at all close to you, unloving, even, even rude, 
may be very offensive to say, no, I'm not going to attend your wedding because I don't approve of you. I, I, that'd be my opinion on it. You want to disagree with me? <laughs> no, I don't think so. All right. Live in love as Christ loved you and gave his life for you. Amen. All right. So my husband is a wonderful man. Thank you. My husband is a wonderful man. <laughs> Shawna asked the question so good. <laughs> this is serious. Um, but when he gets angry, he occasionally hits the wall or throws things. I know he would never be violent with me, but sometimes it's scary to watch. He says it helps him to release his anger and that afterward he feels better. Is this healthy? Hmm. I'll take a swing at that one. Yeah, I, I, I think that indulging in the tri- a triggered state of anger is uh, going to reinforce that pattern. And so um, it's good that he's not hitting her. Um, hitting the wall is better than hitting her, and throwing things at a wall or whatever he's doing is better than throwing at somebody. But anytime we indulge in an emotion, we're more likely to indulge in that emotion. Anytime we act out of the emotion, we're more likely to act out of that emotion again. So it's just reinforcing acting out behavior. And if he does that, it's, it's very possibly increasing the likelihood or the possibility anyway that he might throw something at her or throw a fist at her. So I don't think that's healthy at all. Um, on the other hand, you know, we do have emotional energy that's built up and finding a way to express that is important. So emotions are there for a purpose. They're there to tell us that something on the belief level or the concern level of our life is happening that we need to pay attention to. I mean, it could be a false alarm. It could be that his anger is just triggering because of you know, his past experiences, or it could be that there's something that really does need to be taken uh, a look at and addressed. But either way, uh, the emotion needs to be listened to, it needs to be acknowledged, and then he needs to find out, well, what's the appropriate behavior? So I usually, when talking about emotions with folk, I, folks, I say, well, emotions are kind of like a smoke detector in your house. So we have a smoke detector in your house, and sometimes when you're cooking, uh, you might have a fire in the stove and the smoke detector goes off, and that's a really good thing because it's trying to tell you there's a dangerous thing happening that could cause harm, and so you need to pay attention to that signal and deal with the threat. But sometimes, how many of you have had the smoke detector go off in your house, and it's, it's not the fire on the stove? It might be humid or you know, a little bit of smoke, but not a fire. And so uh, you, you need to learn how to say, well, how do I uh, check out what might be going on, but it, it still needs to be assessed, it needs to be listened to, and then processed in a way that I can find out what's the, the wise response to this signal of anger. So I would say that he probably just needs to learn, maybe through counseling, maybe th- through reading some books and stuff, that anger might be trying to tell him something important, um, and he might need to find out what that is and find different ways to express that um, uh, in, in a healthy way and listen to that so that he knows what the deeper problem is. I think the other thing, though, for men, oftentimes uh, we're angry about things um, on, on one level, and on a deeper level, we might actually be afraid or sad, or there's deep pain in our lives from something that happened in our lives. And then that's when anger is sort of as, uh, functioning as a secondary emotion, where we're more comfortable being angry and hitting things than we are going to those deeper places of either pain or hurt or fear even. Fear is a vulnerable emotion, and pain is a vulnerable emotion, and oftentimes men don't want to go there, so we feel powerful in the emotion of anger. So I would encourage him and his wife to say, well, let's take a look at this. Let's find a way to take a look what's under the anger so that instead of trying to just resist it and override it, they can actually just learn from it and and find a healthy way to deal with what's below it. Yeah, that's good. The only thing I would say is what's not in here is this is a re- is this repetitive. Right. So 
So is it the same sort of thing that, that triggers a person all the time? Sure. Because if it is, then there is more of a biblical background of we need to start taking thoughts captive. We need to renew our mind. And it's not okay to just keep having that same angry outburst over yeah. the same thing all the time. Yeah. We have the, the ability and the opportunity to change that. I, I, I'm sure that this, the, the guy, before he acts out like that, nanosecond before, he's running tapes and stuff in his brain that see him doing that. At some point, he inherited this belief that this is an appropriate way to act out. He runs it in his brain, and then he does it. I, I used to have this issue. My dad, when he would get mad, he wouldn't get violent or anything, but he could curse up a storm. It was the most creative swearing in the world. He'd have entire paragraphs without a single clean word except for the, and. Now that, and but that's just what he did. Uh, and I found that even after coming to Christ and stuff, whenever I would get mad, boom, I would let out some vulgarities. Not many, of course, but you know, some. Uh, just a few. So Just a little bit. Actually, sometimes it was many. But... Uh, I was like, why do I do that? Like, why? You know, I, I pledge off, I'm going to clear up my language. And then as soon as I get mad, it comes out again. And it, so I became a detective of my brain. And if I learned about how the brain works, I know I'm, I'm, I'm doing something in there that makes it seem appropriate to speak this way when I'm angry. And I was able to see that just prior to the event happening that got me angry, or no, it was just prior to me swearing, I would see my dad. I had to think about my dad, and he'd be cursing up a storm. And boom, I'd follow suit. So I encourage the person to you know, look into what are, you do, what are you doing in your head before you act out like this. And as Sue just said, uh, you can change those things. Uh, you can bring them captive to Jesus Christ. Uh, how would Jesus respond here? Start seeing that. Start programming your brain with that, and your behavior will follow suit. Just want to take a quick moment to remind you guys of the phone number that you can still be texting in your questions, 651-321-3030, or you can write them down and um, run them over to Nicole. All right, you guys ready for some parenting questions? Oh, yeah. Bring yeah. it. <laughs> what do you do when you and your wife completely disagree on parenting issues? I think her model of parenting, which involves virtually no discipline, is disastrous. But she gets furious with me when I even raise my voice to any of our three kids. And when I spank them, never very hard and always on the bottom, she completely loses it. I feel like if I give in to her way of raising kids, we'll be dealing with out-of-control mm. children. Mm, lovely. Yeah, my wife and I went through something like this early on. We have three kids. They're teenagers now. But the, the different assumptions and values and models of parenting, we had clashes over that. So the first thing I would say is that it's important for the benefit of your children and your marriage that you guys take some time to get on the same page about uh, parenting styles and what, how to discipline, what your model of discipline will be. So they have some work to do on that, and it would hopefully be able to be done just through some honest conversations with each other. And just talking outside of the moment of children misbehaving, talk outside of the moment and say, hey, let's, let's just work on this proactively. Let's sit down and talk about what is the best way to deal with things. And so, uh, and getting on the same page might be difficult because you, we come from different families of origin and we tend to think that those families of origin are either the right way to do it or we're rebelling against that and saying, well, that's the wrong way and I'm going to do the opposite. But either way, we're just kind of reacting to our family of origins and we need to proactively say, well, what, how will we deal with our kids? And so parents need to be on the same page. 
Otherwise, the kids are going to divide and conquer. Mm-hmm. They're going to know how to play one parent off the other, and then there's going to be a wedge. And be, yeah, they are. They're going to be a wedge in your relationship, and you're going to be fighting each other instead of just proactively helping mm-hmm. to address the issues with your kids. Well, well and I think a critical part about having any kind of conversation where there's conflict is can you get down to what values is e- are yeah. each of you espousing? Like, what value are you holding on to? Because we're wired to protect our value systems. And often what happens when we have these conflict conversations and we can't resolve them, it's we're having the wrong conversation. We need to get down to what value am I protecting? Because there may be different ways of figuring out the answer if we can agree on the values that we're, we're coming together on. Yeah, we both agree. We don't want our kids to grow up, you know, undisciplined or right. uh, on drugs or whatever. Uh, and then how to meet that. It, it's, if, if, the, if, if both have similar values as parents about raising the kids and, and teaching right forms of discipline or whatever, um, then it, it may be the case, and it's, it's equally important to both. As you're discussing this, you both are passionate about this. You may have to say, uh, in fact, I find in marriage you frequently have to say, neither of us are going to get our way. Uh, so we're both going to have to be a little uncomfortable in this, and then meet in the middle. What would a middle ground look like? Uh, and, and then stick with that. So you're both getting some of what you believe, but not getting all of it. And um, yes, meeting in the middle. Love that. All right, so along those same lines, um, the Proverbs in the Bible seem to take the attitude of spare the rod and spoil the child. Clearly, the NFL doesn't agree with this. <laughs> Yikes. So, so, let, so let's forget the rod. What is your opinion on using normal spanking with one's hand as a form of discipline for children? You know, when, when the Bible says spare the rod, it, the point of and spoil the child, uh, that's not primarily about striking the kid. Uh, the rod was the, the thing the shepherd used to keep the sheep in line. And so it is, sometimes you have to prod the sheep a little, little hard, but, but it was, the point of it wasn't striking, the point of it was steering a child in the right direction. So I wouldn't necessarily appeal to that to, to justify a spanking. The Bible requires me uh, to, to strike my child. Oh, this is one of those uh, Romans 14 gray areas, I think, if you have the same value system of wanting to you know, raise your kid right and whatever. This is an area that I think we have to say is, is in, a, in the gray zone, disputable zone. People can have different convictions about this, so... Um, I, I'll now share with you the right one. Uh, it, you know, here's just a question to ask. This is a question I had asked myself: Is this that? Um, what, what, what am I communicating if I spank my child? And one of the things that you can be communicating, and so if you're going to spank, at least take this into consideration and do what you can to avoid this. But you're communicating that inflicting pain is a way of solving problems. Um, and um, do, is that something you want your child to be uh, learning? It's just a, a violence, with, and you don't intend to be violent, but they receive it as violent. It's kind of, you know, you inflicted pain. That uh, violence is a solution. And, uh, of course, the gospel says it's not a solution. So that's one thing to consider. Yeah, it's a complex question. And, uh, you know, I think there's space to say, well, does, does spanking have to equal abuse? And I don't think it no. equals abuse. So that creates a space where parents could choose spanking as an option as long as it's very minimal, it's done in love, certainly not done in anger and reactively. I think one of the biggest problems, and I remember this from my experience as a young parent, uh, it was it, you know, very reactive to their stuff. And so mm. I think that's the first thing we need to move out of the equation and say, how am I going to be in control of myself and, and then I'll have my whole brain at my disposal to know what's wise here. 
And so spanking, if it's going to be done, needs to be done very minimally and in very much control of, so that we're not reactive. And then I think also just what mostly helps motivate us as humans is positive things. So how can we help our children to see, well, how can we help them learn from positives rather than just put in, inflicting a negative? There may, might be times where the negative is the thing that speaks to them. That, that, that's the only, like, taking away a privilege or maybe spanking uh, in, in a certain situation. But oftentimes we'll resort to those things really quickly because they're so, they're so efficient, right? They might get results really quickly. Mm. And I think the longer view would be to say, well, how do I teach my children how do I have positive goals and positive values that we're trying to teach and help them understand those. Now, it's, you can't do that with really, really young kids yeah. and toddlers, um, but definitely some positive uh, reinforcement is, is a key there as well. You were going to say something. Well, I was just going to say it's really important to know what part of your brain is in charge. Mm-hmm. So if your emotional amygdala is in charge, that would mean that you're in a fight-or-flight state, which is often where I think the frustration creates the, the desire to do something aggressive. Yeah. Um, you really do need to think about discipline when you're in your complex thinking brain. Because uh, if you spank out of anger, you're not only communicating the message possibly that uh, violence is a solution to things, you solve problems with violence, but you're communicating this is an appropriate way to respond to anger. Right. And you, want, you don't want your child growing up thinking, oh, when you get angry, you hit somebody. Yeah. So, uh, that's, you know, there's a great book on this called Parenting with Love and Logic mm-hmm. uh, that I would recommend to all uh, young parents and or even you know, parents of any age. Um, and and ba- the basic thesis is that the more you can uh, l- have your children learn by the consequences of their own behavior rather than an imposed sentence of some sort, the healthier it is for them. Because it's all about learning how to you know, get, get, get by in, in this real world. So let the world teach as much as possible. You want to go outside without your coat? I'm not going to make you, but I'm telling you it's cold out there, but if you, that's what you choose, and then let them be cold. Uh, now you have to do that in age-appropriate ways so they're not endangering themselves, but that consequences teach. So as a single parent, how do I navigate being a kingdom person and my anger slash frustration with my child's other parent who not only has never been in his life, but also has another family? Well, yeah, it's a tough, th- that doesn't quite give me enough information oh, so to question? know. Yeah, like, um, what's the problem? So they're a single parent. They are dealing with anger and frustration toward the other parent who's not wow. involved in their child's life, go. but apparently has now gone on to have another family. Got it. So they oh. want to have a kingdom perspective and attitude toward this other parent. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, that's woundedness. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's, that's a forgiveness, I would think, first and foremost, a forgiveness process, mm-hmm. because the anger is probably coming out of the hurt. And the yeah. hurt is triggering into anger. Mm-hmm. So full back up to what, where's the hurt coming from and, and getting into a forgiveness state around that. Yeah. And start. We've talked a number of times through this series about the difference between reconciliation and forgiveness. And so if this other partner has gone off unilaterally to another relationship, they're not involved in the child's life, that's certainly going to be hurtful for this parent. Um, but if, they, if that's, the, that's the reality they're dealing with, this parent needs to sort of process through the loss, the sadness, the anger, the hurt um, towards forgiveness. Um, and reconciliation might not be possible because this person's starting a relationship with this other, this other person. Um, in terms of if the, they're not involved in the child's life at all, um, well, I don't know that, that we don't know what, if that's a good thing or a bad thing. If this was a person who was a responsible parent and they just left or they've never been involved in the child's life, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But for sure, for any future involvement, 
of this other parent in the child's life, it would be good for this uh, custodial parent to be able to work through the pain, the anger, right. the emotions. Basically so, go through the grieving process, yeah, yeah. which mm-hmm. anger is part of yeah. very often that process. Sounds like there's even some, uh, possibly, some resentment because they've gone on and they have a new family. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm still a single here raising this child yeah. and he's the one who did this to me. And right. So there's maybe some contempt you know, that's building up there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the, the, the process of grieving and forgiving is, gonna, is crucial. Hey, this is the only way we can actually love our enemies. Uh, and this person may seem like an enemy to you. Uh, but it's, it's about forgiving them, releasing them. And part of the releasing, and I've said this in each of the services, but part of that releasing, it's not just saying it, but it's releasing in your mind. If this person is, and I suspect they are, always going over, you know, thinking about this person, being angry at this person, what a jerk he was, and I was not all the kids, and my kids deserve better, and I'm doing this all on my own. And if you're just ruminating on that, you're going to be constantly angry and frustrated and all of that. And you're, you're, you're filling your body with toxins and all sorts of stuff. So it's about uh, being transformed by the renewing of your mind, taking every thought captive to Jesus Christ. Whatsoever things are, Philippians 4, whatsoever things are good and true and noble and beautiful, think on those things. Uh, and uh, I'd start applying those, those principles to, you, to your, the way you do your in, in, internal world towards this person. Yeah. All right. All right, you guys, we have time for one final question. Um, and uh, this is for all of you, of course. Um, so there's been a lot of information covered in this series. If I were to remember just one and only one thing, um, or can only teach my children one thing about relationships, what would it be? Uh, Just us. one. <laughs> Live in love as Christ loved you and gave his life for you. Uh, you know, get your life from Christ, manifest it towards others. It applies to all relationships. Um, yeah, that'd be the center of the center for me. Where my mind goes is to the, one of the songs we sang this morning, the beautiful song, Anchor. And yeah. that just that, that Christ and, and Christ's love, the Father's love, is the anchor for our soul. So if we're drawing from his love and his acceptance of us, and we're taking that in on a daily basis, and that is the unshakable foundation that we're standing on, then I feel like we can go into relationships in a very healthy giving way, going in to give and not having to get certain things from folks because we're rock solid in the life we receive from the Father. Excellent. Aren't they great? (laughs) You guys are great. I I, I so appreciate. I I appreciate you guys. This uh, this has been a lot of fun. It's very, very helpful and informative. Uh, You want to make a plug? Yeah, we've been addressing lots of different questions and issues here, and we certainly didn't get to everybody's questions, and even we certainly didn't thoroughly answer the ones we we did get to. So for any of you who sent these questions in or have situations that are like some of these issues, we would just like to make you aware of just the, the various ministries in the care area that are available. There's a professional counseling referral list that we have on the Internet on our website as well as you can get a, a copy of it. Um, we have awesome lay counselors that meet in this building and offer counseling to folks who can't access professional counseling. We have support groups in the refuge that are very helpful for a lot of these issues that have been brought up, as well as our awesome prayer ministry, and the prayer ministers will be up here at the end of the service. So you can avail yourself of any of those ministries. Contact information is right up there on the screen. So. All right, would you stand? I'll send us out with this little benediction. And could I ask the prayer teams to come up here as I do this? If you have any need whatsoever uh, that could use prayer, whether it's relationship or something else, uh, come up here and pray with these folks. They, they just love to minister to you. Uh, as we leave here, I pray, Lord, uh, help us, remind us to be seeking right relatedness 
in all of our relationships, to live in peace with all folks insofar as that is possible, and to have your wisdom as we deal with situations where maybe peace is not possible. Uh, we seek to honor you in all that we do and all that we relate, uh, the way we relate and who we relate to. Uh, just shine through us in Jesus' name. And all of God's kingdom people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Go love on the world.